Part One, Chapter Ten, of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Still, men were without faith in the strike. When Daylight, with his heavy outfit of flour, arrived at the mouth of the Klondike, he found the big flat as desolate and tenantless as ever. Down close by the river, Chief Isaac and his Indians were camped beside the frames on which they were drying salmon. Several old-timers were also encamped there. Having finished their summer work on Ten Mile Creek, they had come down the Yukon, bound for Circle City. But at Sixty Mile they had learned of the strike and stopped off to look over the ground. They had just returned to their boat when daylight landed his flower and their report was pessimistic. Damn moose pasture, quoth one, Long Jim Harney, pausing to blow into his tin mug of tea. Don't you have nothing to do with it, Daylight. It's a blamed rotten cell. They're just going through the motions of a strike, Harper and Ledoux's behind it, and Carmack's the stool pigeon. Who ever heard of mining a moose pasture half a mile between Rimrock and God alone knows how far to bedrock. Daylight nodded sympathetically and considered for a space. Did y'all pan any? he asked finally. Pan hell, was the indignant answer. Think I was born yesterday? Only a chechaku fool around with that pasture long enough to fill a pan of dirt. You don't catch me at any such foolishness. One look was enough for me. We're pulling on in the morning for Circle City. I ain't never had faith in this upper country. Head reaches of the Tanana is good enough for me from now on. And mark my words, when the big strike comes, she'll come down river. Johnny here staked a couple of miles below Discovery, but he don't know no better. Johnny looked shamefaced. I just did it for fun, he explained. I'd give my chance in the creek for a pound of star plug. I'll go you, Daylight said promptly, but don't you all come squealing if I take twenty or thirty thousand out of it. Johnny grinned cheerfully. Give me the tobacco, he said. Wish I'd staked alongside, Long Jim murmured plaintively. It ain't too late, Daylight replied. But it's a twenty-mile walk there and back. I'll stake it for you tomorrow when I go up, Daylight offered. Then you'd do the same as Johnny? Get the fees from Tim Logan. He's tending bar in the sourdough, and he'll lend it to me. Then fill in your own name, transfer it to me, and turn the papers over to Tim. Me too, chimed in the third old-timer. And for three pounds of star-plug chewing tobacco, Daylight bought outright three five-hundred-foot claims on Bonanza. He could still stake another claim in his own name, the others being merely transfers. Must say you're almighty brash with your chewing tobacco, Long Jim grinned. Got a factory somewheres? Nope, but I got a hunch, was the retort. And I'll tell y'all, it's cheaper than dirt to ride her at the rate of three plugs for three claims. But an hour later, at his own camp, Joe Ledoux strolled in, fresh from Bonanza Creek, at first noncommittal over Carmack's strike, then later dubious, he finally offered Daylight a hundred dollars for his share in the town site. Cash? Daylight queried. 
Sure, there she is. So saying, Ledoux pulled out his gold sack. Daylight hefted it, absent-mindedly, and still absent-mindedly, untied the strings, and ran some of the gold dust out on his palm. It showed darker than any dust he had ever seen, with the exception of Carmack's. He ran the gold back, tied the mouth of the sack, and returned it to Ledoux. I guess y'all need it more than I do, was Daylight's comment. Nope, got plenty more, the other assured him. Where'd that come from? Daylight was all innocence as he asked the question, and Ledoux received the question as stolidly as an Indian. Yet for a swift instant they looked into each other's eyes, and in that instant an intangible something seemed to flash out from all the body and spirit of Joe Ledoux and it seemed to Daylight that he had caught this flash, sensed a secret something in the knowledge and plans behind the other's eyes. "'You all know the creek better than me,' Daylight went on, "'and if my share in the town site's worth a hundred to you all with what you know, it's worth a hundred to me, whether I know it or not.' "'I'll give you three hundred, Ledoux offered desperately. "'Still the same reasoning. No matter what I don't know, it's worth to me whatever y'all willing to pay for it. Then it was that Joe Ledoux shamelessly gave over. He led Daylight away from the camp and the men, and told him things in confidence. She's sure there, he said in conclusion. I didn't sluice it or cradle it. I panned it, all in that sack yesterday on the rim rock. I tell you, you can shake it out of the grass roots. And what's on bedrock down in the bottom of the creek there ain't no way of telling. But she's big, I'll tell you, big. Keep it quiet and locate all you can. It's in spots, but I wouldn't be none surprised if some of them claims yielded as high as fifty thousand. The only trouble is that it's spotted. A month passed by, and Bonanza Creek remained quiet. A sprinkling of men had staked, but most of them, after staking, had gone on down to Forty Mile and Circle City. The few that possessed sufficient faith to remain were busy building log cabins against the coming of winter. Carmack and his Indian relatives were occupied in building a sluice box and getting a head of water. The work was slow, for they had to saw their lumber by hand from the standing forest. But farther down Bonanza were four men who had drifted in from upriver, Dan McGilvery, Dave McKay, Dave Edwards, and Harry Wall. They were a quiet party, neither asking nor giving confidences, and they herded by themselves. But Daylight, who had panned the spotted rim of Carmack's claim and shaken coarse gold from the grass roots, and who had panned the rim at a hundred other places up and down the length of the creek and found nothing, was curious to know what lay on bedrock. He had noted the four quiet men sinking a shaft close by the stream, and he had heard their whipsaw going as they made lumber for the sluice boxes. He did not wait for an invitation, but he was present the first day they sluiced. At the end of five hours shoveling for one man, he saw them take out thirteen ounces and a half of gold. It was coarse gold, running from pinheads to a twelve-dollar nugget, and it had come off bedrock. 
The first fall snow was flying that day, and the Arctic winter was closing down. But daylight had no eyes for the bleak gray sadness of the dying, short-lived summer. He saw his vision coming true, and on the big flat was upreared anew his golden city of the snows. Gold had been found on bedrock. That was the big thing. Carmack's strike was assured. Daylight staked the claim in his own name, adjoining the three he had purchased with his plugged tobacco. This gave him a block of property two thousand feet long and extending in width from Rimrock to Rimrock. Returning that night to his camp at the mouth of the Klondike, he found in it Kama, the Indian he had left at D.A. Kama was traveling by canoe, bringing in the last mail of the year. In his possession was some two hundred dollars in gold dust, which Daylight immediately borrowed. In return, he arranged to stake a claim for him, which he was to record when he passed through Forty Mile. When Kama departed next morning, he carried a number of letters for Daylight addressed to all the old-timers downriver, in which they were urged to come up immediately and stake. Also, Kama carried letters of similar import given him by the other men on Bonanza. It will sure be the gosh-dangdest stampede that ever was, Daylight chuckled, as he tried to vision the excited population of Forty Mile and Circle City tumbling into polling boats and racing the hundreds of miles up the Yukon for he knew that his word would be unquestioningly accepted. With the arrival of the first Stampeders, Bonanza Creek woke up, and thereupon began a long-distance race between unveracity and truth, wherein, lie no matter how fast, men were continually overtaken and passed by truth. When men who doubted Carmack's report of two and a half to the pan, themselves panned two and a half, they lied and said they were getting an ounce. And long ere their lie was fairly on its way, they were getting not one ounce, but five ounces. This they claimed was ten ounces. But when they filled a pan of dirt to prove the lie, they washed out twelve ounces. And so it went. They continued valiantly to lie, but the truth continued to outrun them. One day in December, Daylight filled a pan from bedrock on his own claim and carried it into his cabin. Here a fire burned and enabled him to keep water unfrozen in a canvas tank. He squatted over the tank and began to wash. Earth and gravel seemed to fill the pan. As he imparted it to a circular movement, the lighter, coarser particles washed out over the edge. At times he combed the surface with his fingers, raking out handfuls of gravel. The contents of the pan diminished. As it drew near to the bottom for the purpose of fleeting and tentative examination, he gave the pan a sudden sloshing movement, emptying it of water. And the whole bottom showed as if covered with butter. Thus the yellow gold flashed up as the muddy water was flirted away. It was gold gold dust, coarse gold, nuggets, large nuggets. He was all alone. He set the pan down for a moment and thought long thoughts. Then he finished the washing 
and weighed the results in his scales. At the rate of sixteen dollars to the ounce, the pan had contained seven hundred and odd dollars. It was beyond anything that he had ever dreamed. His fondest anticipations had gone no farther than twenty or thirty thousand dollars to a claim, but here were claims worth half a million each at the least, even if they were spotted. He did not go back to work in the shaft that day, nor the next, nor the next. Instead, capped and mittened, a light stampeding outfit, including his rabbit-skin robe strapped on his back, he was out and away, on a many days' tramp over creeks and divides, inspecting the whole neighboring territory. On each creek he was entitled to locate one claim, but he was chary in thus surrendering up his chances. On Hunker Creek only did he stake a claim. Bonanza Creek he found staked from mouth to source, while every little draw and pup and gulch that drained into it was likewise staked. Little faith was had in these side streams. They had been staked by hundreds of men who had failed to get in on Bonanza. The most popular of these creeks was Adams. The one least fancied was El Dorado, which flowed into Bonanza just above Carmack's discovery claim. Even Daylight disliked the looks of El Dorado, but still, riding his hunch, he bought half a share in one claim on it for half a sack of flour. A month later, he paid $800 for the adjoining claim. Three months later, enlarging his block of property, he paid 40000 for a third claim, and though it was concealed in the future, he was destined, not long after, to pay 150000 for a fourth claim on the creek that had been least liked of all the creeks. In the meantime, and from the day he washed $700 from a single pan and squatted over and thought a long thought, he never again touched hand to pick and shovel. As he said to Joe Ledoux the night of that wonderful washing, Joe, I ain't never going to work hard again. Here's where I begin to use my brains. I'm going to farm gold. Gold will grow if you all have the savvy and can get hold of some of the seed. When I seen them seven hundred dollars in the bottom of the pan, I knew I had the seed at last. Where are you going to plant it? Joe Ledoux had asked. And Daylight, with a wave of his hand, definitely indicated the whole landscape and the creeks that lay beyond the divides. There she is, he said, and you all just watch my smoke. There's millions here for the man who can see them. And I seen all them millions this afternoon when them seven hundred dollars peeped up at me from the bottom of the pan and chirruped. Well, if here ain't burning daylight, come at last. End of Part 1 Chapter 10